0: Hello! We're really glad that you've decided to spend some time with us as we investigate spiritual things. We hope that you're doing well. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. And today, let's consider what Jesus has to say, beginning in Luke chapter 15 and verse 11. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found." You may recognize this. This is the parable of the prodigal son and the older brother. And So let's investigate what Jesus is communicating here. Let's begin by looking at the context. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to be delivered up. Now, he doesn't go there directly. There's kind of this wandering journey that, that is discussed from Luke nine fifty-one on until uh, a little bit after this. And he seems to be in Samaria, he seems to be back in Galilee, back and forth. So this is, what this is really showing us is that everything going on here is leading us to Jerusalem. All these things are exemplifying Jesus' ministry. It's telling us what this is all about. Now in the past few chapters, in chapters 10 through 14, Jesus has been doing a lot of preaching and teaching and, and healing. He sends out the 72. He teaches the multitudes and the disciples many times. Uh, He also focuses many of his conversations on the Pharisees and lawyers. And he does cast out some demons and heals in the synagogue and has a reaction to it. But it's very noticeable that so much of this section is related to the teaching of the disciples and when it comes to discuss disputing with the Pharisees. And this comes together and comes to a head as, as we begin Luke chapter 15. Now back in verse 1, we're told that the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so... This is the context that will continue. the direct context that continues on here into the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, what came right after uh the Pharisees said this, Jesus gave the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin, showing and defending his ministry of how God is greatly concerned for those who are lost and that need to be found. In fact, there is more joy in heaven over the one who repents than for 99 who have no need of repentance. And so what Jesus does is he defends his right to associate with sinners in order to show them the way of God and to bring them to repentance. And that's not going to be done if he keeps apart from them uh, the way that the Pharisees are doing. So when Jesus begins this parable here, he's he's just really having the this contrast in mind. We've got the sinners and tax collectors on the one hand, and we've got the Pharisees and the scribes on the other hand, and as we're going to see throughout this parable, both of these groups are being discussed. We've got the sinners and we've got the Pharisees, and uh, they're being exemplified in this story that Jesus begins to tell us. And he begins this story by telling us there's a certain man, and the certain man has two sons, and the story begins with the younger son requesting a share of the property. He wants his inheritance. And literally in verse three, that the father divides so if you're verse 12, the father divides his life. This is literally his life, and that's exactly what's going on here. The son is essentially declaring that his father is dead to him. Uh, You're dead to me. Give me what is mine. Give me my inheritance. Now, this is extremely shameful behavior, very reckless and endangering everything. In in first-century Palestine, most people's wealth, even the very wealthy, is based in property. Uh, The idea that you have a share of land, and the share of land you give to your children and and, and their children after them, it's a perpetual source of income, to sell off a part of it or to sell off a part of one's share uh, is going to be very detrimental to the family and detrimental to the long-term health of not just this individual but this, this whole family. And so it shows here very much short-term thinking uh, to the expense of, of long-term security. And so the father does this, though. The father is willing to do this. And so he gives this son all these things he asks for. The younger son then soon leaves. He separates for a far country. And that demonstrates separation. It's He's far away uh, from his father's view. Uh, his father's not going to hear from him. Uh, he goes to be anonymous because of the type of things he's doing. We're told without comment that he squanders a property in reckless living. We're not told what the reckless living was involved. We're going to see what his brother thinks was going on, and, and that might very well be true or may not be. We're not told. We're told it's reckless living, and he, he, he loses everything. He spends everything. And at that moment, we have all these difficulties. So we have this typification. This guy typifies. He is the representative example of, an, of insolence, of rebellion, and of hedonism. He has just lived for pleasure. He's, he's wasted everything he's got. Total short-term thinking. And in so doing, by the way, he brings shame and dishonor upon himself and upon his entire family. This is not commendable behavior. And, and yet here we have this moment of difficulty. Because a famine comes up in this land and and now he's got nothing prepared now the consequences of his reckless irrational behavior become obvious and and he's forced into this most degrading humiliating position he has hired himself off to somebody's in the land to feed pigs. Now, pigs were unclean, uh, according to Leviticus 11. Uh, the Jews despised pigs, they despised anybody who worked with pigs, and so for a Jew to be feeding a pig, and especially for a Jewish person to have to want to, want to eat the food he's feeding to the pigs. To want to eat pig food is, is what we would call rock bottom. This is the lowest of the low. This is a pathetic situation he's in. It uh, really shows the, the, the terrible consequences of his, of his behavior. And so he, we're told, comes to himself in verse seventeen. This is a crisis point, and to say he came to himself is a recognition that he's been carried away by desire. He's been living according to the lust of the flesh, and he's not been fully rational. He has not really acted in a very human way, as we can see in John, James one fourteen through fifteen and First John two fifteen through seventeen. And when he came to himself, and he had this moment of realization, he came. He realized that. All of his father's servants had enough bread to eat and then some. And here he wants to eat pig food. And he, and he makes his calculation to himself that the humiliation of having to go back to his father is worth it to survive. Uh, not as a son. He, he understands that because of what he's done, he's no longer worthy to be called the son of the father. But he's willing to be at least considered as a servant. Because a servant of the father is doing a whole lot better than the situation he is in apart from his father. And so he begins to come back. And so he, he's returning, and as he's returning, the father sees him from afar. We're not told he's been intentionally looking for him, uh, but the father happens to know us from afar. And, of course, it's probably a sad picture. We don't, we're not given detail, but if he's in this condition, he's probably wearing rags. Uh, he's probably unkempt to some degree. Uh, it's not a pretty picture at all. And yet the father has compassion. And he, the father runs out to meet him and falls upon his neck, embracing him, and kisses him. Now, the one thing that we see throughout this display here is that the father's response is extravagant, excessive, to the point of being unseemly. This is not a dignified way to be acting in, in, this, in this situation. And so the younger son begins to re- his rehearsed speech. He said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And we get the, we get the idea that as he's saying this, he's probably going to say uh, the rest of it, uh, but he, he doesn't get that far. Uh, the father interrupts him or stops him and, and starts making orders to the servants to bring the best robe, put it on, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fat and calf and kill. Let's eat and celebrate. Uh, it, it, the son has come in this very humble position. He recognizes he is not worthy to be a son, but yet the father, in his compassion, elevates him back to his sonship and finds a reason to rejoice. It is a time for a festival, it's time for a feast, it's time for a party. And it's very interesting to note his language. He says, the son of mine who was dead is now alive, was lost and is now found. It is a sense of resurrection for the father and is a source of great joy for him. The parable doesn't end here though. Because there's still that older son, the older brother that we haven't been heard of. Now, and we're told that he's out working in the field. He's out doing the dutiful thing. And as he's coming back, he hears this commotion, the sound of of music and dancing. And so he asks one of the servants what's going on. And and the servant says, your brother came home, and, and this is what your father's done for him. And notice his son's reaction. He is angry, and he refuses to enter the party. Now, by refusing to to participate in the party of his father, he in bringing shame and dishonor upon himself and upon his family. Just like his brother brought shame upon himself and the family by his actions, now the older brother is bringing shame as well. And, And the father comes out to him, which is a grand act of humiliation. Something that need not happen or should not happen. But the father we, we get the impression the father is a very magnanimous character in the story. And so he is willing to, to bear the shame when he shouldn't have to bear the shame. And so the father comes out to entreat his son. And the son begins talking. And we, the, we, we learn so much about the father, the, the, the older brother here. Look, these many years I have served you. That verb served there in the Greek is doulewo, to, to be a slave to. He looks at the life he's lived for his father in terms of enslavement. And yet, you have never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. So the older son says, Well, since I've done all these things for you, I should be able to have a good time with my friends, while he is separating himself from the good time his father's having. He is not happy because his father's happy. He is angry because of the situation. And the reason, as we can see, is because of his contempt for his brother. Can't even call him his brother this son of yours. And he speaks to him disparagingly, he has devoured your property with prostitutes. He's giving the most negative spin, which might well be true, we don't know. But you can just feel the, the hostility and the enmity and the venom. Here I've been the good guy, I've done everything you've wanted me to do, and this is how you treat the one who disobeyed you. And, and you can understand, and especially if you've had siblings, you can understand where this anger is coming from. And notice how the father responds to him. He uses the most intimate term of the entire parable, technon, child, or son, often translated, really child. It's much more endearing than just weos, the word for son. As all that I have is yours, you are always with me. But then he says, it is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother, and he emphasizes, there is that connection still. This your brother was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost and is now found. Now, this is one of the most cherished, evocative, and descriptive parables there is. And we can understand the characters. The father is God. And, and notice here the, the patience and love of God toward both of his sons. To his, to his son who has stayed in the fold but has contempt for his brother and for the one who was a prodigal who, who wasted but then came to a knowledge of the truth. He wants, he, he, and notice he's even allowed his children to be separated from him. But then it, it, it receives them back graciously. Beyond grace, receives them back with excessive extravagance. Always seeking to reconcile himself to those who have been separated from him, even in unseemly ways. The younger son is called the prodigal. And of course, that's the term that's been thrown around in this, this um, parable. And prodigal just means one who extravagantly spends money. And, and so the prodigal here is anybody who is separated from God. Because even if you're separated from God, the life that you currently live is sustained by and subsisting upon the life of God. The, the stuff of God uh, who made us. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 45, God brings rain upon the just and the unjust. If, if it is true that God is creator and God has made everything in this creation, uh, if we are separated from God because of our rebelliousness and our sinfulness in our hearts, and yet we continue to live and we enjoy the material benefits of this earth, we are as a prodigal. We are separated from God. We're in a far country. We're, we're, we're extravagantly spending all the things God has given us uh, for things that won't last. Now, the older son could be anyone who maintains a relationship with God. But here specifically is the Pharisees and the scribes, the ones who who brought up this issue to begin with in the beginning of chapter 15. And they are focused on commandments, and they consider their relationship with their father in terms of bondage. Then they feel entitled, because uh, of their relationship with God, to the fruit of God's kingdom, and expect to share it with themselves. That's very clear in this story. Now the far country is the world, separate from God, the love of the eye, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Uh, these things are going to pass away. God is eternal in 1 John 2:15 through 17. And the Father's house is heaven, the servants is a heavenly host. And so what Jesus is really doing here is he's really he he he's these two parables earlier, lost sheep and corner leading up to this prodigal son, the older brother because he's now making the contrast. He first says, "Okay, guys, it is appropriate Just like you would go out for the sheep or a coin that's lost, even though you've got found sheep and found coins. So God wants to go after the sinners. But let's now take a look at the sinners and the Pharisees. Let's take a look at the holy people and the unholy people who are all in God's family. In Acts chapter 17, we are all his offspring. So they're all part of God's offspring. And so the situation here is that you've got these sinners who separate themselves from God and who cause God grief by doing that, who extravagantly waste the life of God. But when they come back in humility, and and the the sinners out there need to recognize that they're extravagantly depending upon God. And they have some kind of famine, some kind of situation where they come to the realization uh, that it is a whole lot better to be a slave in the house of God than to be out on their own. And so then they come back to God in the position of a supplicant. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. But when God sees that, God brings them in and restores them to sonship. On the other hand here, you've got these religious people. And they think they are entitled to everything. And notice this contrast here. The son, the prodigal son comes back, treat me as a servant. And he's elevated to sonship. However, the older brother, who's always been a son, considers his sonship as slavery. I have served you. I have, sl- I have, an- I have acted as a slave for you for all of these years. Through grace and mercy, the younger son is no- not a slave, but a- but a son. But the older son, trying to justify himself before God, through his obedience, is but a slave. The Pharisees and everyone like them are therefore not able to take advantage of God's grace because they're focused on their legalism and their endeavor to justify themselves by their works and standing before God. Now notice that the older son wants exactly what the younger father has provided for the younger son. The issue here is that the son wishes that he could get a goat and to enjoy it with friends. He wants to have a party. But he wants the party on his terms with his people. And cannot bring himself to enjoy the party the father presents in the father's good wishes. And the reason for this is because of the contempt he has for his brother. And ultimately, that's the sad sad thing. Could the the older brother have enjoyed the the association with the father and, and enjoyed all these things? Yes, he could have. He stands out himself. As the party's going on, the older brother, the older son, intentionally excludes himself because it's not being done on the terms he wants. He excludes himself from the joy of the father because of how he views his younger brother. And so it is with the Pharisees. They may end up excluding, excluding themselves from God's blessings in his kingdom because they refuse to participate with those who have accepted God's mercy and grace because they, those other people were sinners and recognized that fact. So therefore, Jesus, in this parable simultaneously reinforces a message of God's extravagant mercy and grace towards sinners who repent, as we can see in the previous parables of the lost sheep and coin. And in this case, really fully fleshed out as a human being who is a very non-sympathetic character because of his reckless living, but who repents, who humbles himself, and then is a character with whom we can sympathize. But now he also brings in the Pharisee and the attitude of the Pharisee, and it's now the Pharisee who ultimately is the character with whom we are not to sympathize because of how he views his relationship with his father and how he treats his brother. Because they are resisting God's purposes in Christ and therefore excluding themselves from the blessings of his promises. There's so much that we can take from this. There's no end to the different lessons that we can get from this story. But the prodigal son is a one that features prominently in the eyes of many. And that's why so many people call it the parable of the prodigal son, the folks on the prodigal son. Odds are you've heard a lesson on the prodigal son, or, or uh, their songs. God is calling the prodigal. Uh, and, and he's a model that we sympathize with, because, in a sense, we all have our moment as a prodigal son. Because how many have rebelled against God who live in pleasure, who suffer the consequences, hit rock bottom and come back to God? That's the the conversion story of of thousands of people, and praise God for it. Sadly, how many are still separated from God? They have not yet hit rock bottom, or they have not yet recognized that it is better to be a slave in the house of God than to be uh, free in this world of sin. And... And yet we're supposed to do well to remember that no matter how sinful our fellow man may be, there are still children of God who have separated themselves by rebellion and they're living for self. And God wants them all to repent and to be saved in Acts 17, 1 Timothy 2, 4, and 2 Peter 3, 9. That, that we need... That, Sometimes we identify the prodigal son, but when we see other people who might be prodigal sons, we don't want to identify with them because they're not the same kind of sinful people as we were. And that's a danger we need to be concerned about. And the reason is because we all were in that position. once. We were all separated from God. We were all dead and needed to be reconciled back to Him and to be alive again uh, in Ephesians 2, 1-18 and Titus 3, 3-8. So we all were in that position of needing spiritual death and resurrection so we can experience the, sp- the physical resurrection on the final day. And the father, the father in the parable is a wonderful illustration of the character of God. Because he is compassionate. He is graceful, merciful, finding cause for great joy and celebration and reconciliation with his son. Now, let's be honest here. The father would have been in the right to disown his son. He would have been in the right to receive his son as a slave. But he did not do either. Instead, he received his son back as a son. And that is the way God wants to treat humans. Humans. Now, so often the people look at God as a harsh taskmaster, an old man who is looking for reasons to condemn and smite people. But this is not the portrayal of God that we get in the New Testament by Jesus. That in the New Testament, God was willing to send his son to die so that we could be reconciled back to him, to receive sonship by adoption through him, and to obtain a share in the inheritance of Christ in Romans chapter 8. That's not the picture of somebody who's looking for a reason to condemn you. Uh, we, God didn't need a reason to condemn us. We gave it to him very easily. No, God is acting and going beyond in ways to try to help us get beyond that problem and to be re- reconciled back to him. And so we do very well to allow the picture of the father in the parable of the prodigal son and older brother, brother to inform our view of God. A father loving, compassionate, always desiring reconciliation with all of his children, celebrating every time that reconciliation takes place. But then there's the older brother, older son. And in fact, I think that the, a good argument can be made that really this is the parable of the older brother. That the focus of the parable is this new element that is not seen with the lost sheep and lost coin, but this, this antagonistic figure who is a representation of the Pharisees. And he stands as a warning throughout the generations to Christians. Because the problem is not inherently in the attempt to follow after what God has commanded. It's not that, the, uh, or, um, that one is not in relationship with God, as seen in the parable. Because we are to do all things in the name of the Lord in Colossians 3, verse 17. And we are to do his commandments in 1 John 2, 1 through 6. Look, though, at how the Orson son looks at his life. He speaks of his life in terms of slavery. He looks at himself as a slave of God. And it is true that we are God's servants, and we are to see ourselves as God's slaves in many ways. In Luke 17, 7-10, uh, Paul and others talk about themselves as a slave of Christ. But throughout the New Testament, there's also this message, though, that we're not really slaves. We have not been given the spirit of bondage, as in slavery, but the spirit of adoption as sons. And the reason why that's important is because our relationship with God is not predicated on our obedience. If it were, we'd all be condemned because none of us have been obedient fully. Our relationship with God is predicated on His love, grace, and mercy. Without that, we would not be saved. Does that mean we're not supposed to obey? No, we're not trying to say that this justifies or excuses disobedience. But it speaks to the way we look at our relationship with God and how that relationship with God exists. We are obedient servants of God because God has shown us this love and shown us mercy and grace and has received us. And we don't have to look to God as a harsh taskmaster. We don't have to have the view of God as the older brother has of his father. We should be ever appreciative of the graciousness of the father toward us. But it's also important to note how the older brother won a celebration on his own terms. That the kingdom is God's, and God determines who will be in it and who receives the blessings. we must seek to associate with all of his people, not just of those people with whom we want to associate. As we see in 1 John 5, 1, 5, and 6. That if we walk in the light of season light, the blood of Jesus forgives us of our sins. It's very easy to want to be a part of a group who are like us. The, the, the older brother wanted to share the feast with people like him. He did not like the people who he thought were different than him, who who looked different, who may have been sinners in the past, who did all these things he didn't like. And that that was the source of the problem, this contemptuous attitude the older brother had toward his younger brother. And that's something we need to be concerned about, because we must always recognize that no matter how much we grow in Christ, no matter how mature we grow in holiness and righteousness, we are not better than anybody else. We do not deserve salvation better than anybody, more than anybody else. And we have no rights to look upon anyone with contempt. That instead we are to love everybody and to seek each other's best interest in Philippians 2, 1-4, Titus 3, 3 through 8 His fate was that he found himself outside of God's celebration and joy because he refused to enter into it. And we must make sure that we do not do the same thing. That we don't intentionally exclude ourselves from God's celebration because his celebration is happening on his terms and not ours. And that makes us unhappy. We need to be the ones who, in humility, rejoice in what makes God rejoice. If it makes the Father happy, it makes us happy. If the Father's celebrating, we're celebrating. That our attitudes should mean a whole lot less and should be inclined toward His attitudes. And be thankful to God that He is willing to extend to others the same excessive, extravagant, unseemly grace. To others that he has extended to us. So in the parable of the prodigal son and the older brother we find an errant man who finds repentance, a loving father showing compassion, and a recalcitrant man who excludes himself from the celebration. We do well to come to the God as the prodigal came back to his father, humbly and in repentance, and we should always think of God as the father of the prodigal, ever ready to receive his children back to him. And we do well to avoid becoming like the older son, wanting to be surrounded only by people like him, contemptuous toward others, feeling entitled to the things he felt entitled to in the the kingdom of God. It's interesting to consider, how should the older brother have acted? We actually know how the older brother should have acted. He should have been thankful to work with his father and to seek to please the father. Not just indeed outward, but inwardly in thought and feeling as well. And therefore, he would have rejoiced with his father that his brother was able to come back and to be reconciled. Now, for the younger brother to receive an inheritance at all, it would have to come at the expense of the older brother, since the younger brother had wasted all of his inheritance. And the older brother should have been willing to suffer some loss so that his brother could seek a share of his, have a share of the inheritance. Because... They both share in the love of the Father. Now, how do we know that's how the older brother should have acted? Well, because we are to know who is the ideal older brother. Jesus himself. In Romans 8 and verse 29, we're told that we are to, to be conformed to the image of the Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And Hebrews 2 and verse 17, he is called, the, he is called our brother. It's interesting how Jesus is notably absent from this parable. He's, he's not one of the characters. And yet, he's the narrator of this parable. And he's not far from its events because he is everything the older brother should be. He does the father's will. He rejoices in that which causes the father to rejoice. And he ultimately will be willing to suffer the loss of his life so that his people his fellow brothers can be reconciled back to the Father, and therefore to obtain a share of the inheritance of the Father through him. As we can see in Romans 5, 6, 11, and chapter 8, verses 16 through 18, that we are joint heirs with Christ. We can only be joint heirs with Christ because Christ has been willing to suffer loss so that we can share in that inheritance. Now, there was no salvation through the Pharisees or through any religious authorities, and that's very interesting here. They weren't offering eternal life. They weren't offering reconciliation to God through the, the, their offering, sacrifice to themselves for the forgiveness of sins. Salvation can only come from the merciful God through the compassionate older brother, Jesus. And that is why we must find salvation in God through Christ and celebrate in His glory and the advancement of His purposes. To seek to give, to enjoy and to rejoice in the things that give God and Christ reason to rejoice. And to look forward to joining that wonderful party in the resurrection for all eternity and not find ourselves excluded because of our own unwillingness to enter into the joy of our Father that you've been encouraged by our conversation here about the parable of the prodigal son and the older brother if you have any questions or comments about anything we've talked about uh, if you want to learn more about God or if you have a prayer request or going through some difficulty if we of any service please let me know please contact me through my website at that's www.de dot and if you live in Los Angeles or traveling in Los Angeles area we'd love for you to check us out we're online at org, and we're also on Facebook Google Plus Meetup and Twitter We again thank you. Have a great day.